This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephan Cox. Hello. This week, we have a big show. First, with primary ballots arriving this week, we talk about how and why to get people excited about this year's election with chair of the Washington State Democratic Party, Tina Podlodowski. Especially during these trying times, it's important to get out there, get engaged with the campaign, get engaged with other people, knock doors. First of all, you'll be around people who believe the way that you do, and that's a lift. But second, of all, you'll actively be doing something that is proactively making changes in this country. Next, in light of escalating raids of migrants and asylum seekers by ICE, we talk with Brenda Rodriguez. She is the Eastern Washington Coordinator for the Washington Immigrant Solidarity Network, and we learn about how you can get involved by taking their rapid response training to help migrants and their families under siege. We also talk with the president and co-founder of Lawyer Moms of America, Tova Kopan, about Lawyer Moms' second annual Kids Take a Stand fundraiser, which encourages kids and their families all across the country to open lemonade stands to raise money for migrant children who have been separated from their families. And finally, we have our call to action with research team leader Stephen Wilhelm. That's all ahead, so stay with us. With the 2019 primary election just about upon us, ballots will be arriving in our mailboxes soon. And historically, odd-year elections don't get people's attention as much as they should, but we are trying to change that. And so we have invited on our friend Tina Podlodowski to talk about what is at stake and what Democrats can gain in 2019. Tina is, of course, the chair of the Washington State Democratic Party, and we are so glad that she could join us. Hello, Tina. Hello. Thanks so much for having me on today. So let's start here. What is the importance of off-year elections? Why should people care? Sure. And uh, I think we all want to start with uh, there are no more off years. There are just um, elections that are local elections versus ones that are statewide and federal. In in 2019 in Washington state, for example, we're going to have close to over 3000 people elected to office, whether that's fire commissioner, school board member, city council member, so many of those. And it's incredibly important because what happens in these local elections really can shift policy for a state. Remember the fight for 15, for $15 an hour minimum wage came out of SeaTac here in Washington state. And we now we have a statewide minimum wage um, that's a living wage. And so all of these things are incredibly important. Plus, all of these folks have an opportunity to move up and really become terrific political talent uh, later on as they become state legislators or governors or senators or maybe even president someday. So it's really, really important to engage in the elections and make sure that we elect people who can fairly represent their communities. You're hinting at this already, but talk a little bit, if you will, about the impact of building Democratic majorities at the city council and school board level. What can Democrats get accomplished at that level? You mentioned the $15 minimum wage. What are some other things? Well, think about all of the things that city councils and school boards do and think about the values of the people who hold those elected offices. If your value is to make sure that employees get paid a living wage, a family wage, then as a city council member or a school board member, you will go to bat for those employees, for our teachers, for our 
the folks who work um, uh, for the utility companies, for local uh, jurisdictions, for the folks who are doing the work in every single city. But you'll also look at how the policies end up happening in every city and town around affordable housing, around caring for people who are in need, um, around social services, around how we deal with all of these things. So great ideas come out of cities and towns and school districts really experimenting to make sure that they are serving the needs of the people who live in those areas yeah. and attend those schools and the needs of their workers. So they're democracy's great experiments. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, these are the sorts of decisions that impact our daily lives, often much more so than what happens at the national or even state level. So you have talked in the past about running a Democrat in every race in the state. Uh, You mentioned there are 3,000 people running. is there a Democrat in every race in the state this year? It seems like kind of a kind of a heavy lift. <laughs> well, we targeted 700 of those races to take a look at different kinds of seats that we could flip from red to blue. And um, we didn't hit 700. We hit 689 people. That's great. For all of those races. Yeah. And that was really terrific. The campaign was called Rise and Run, and it's still going on because we're not going to stop it. We're going to keep it going as a permanent program of the Washington State Democrats. And it provides training. It provides support. It also provides a campaign plan generator for people running in these uh, various offices, because what you need more than anything else is a plan. What's my win number? How much money do I need to raise? Who do I need to talk to? And once that was the realm of consultants, well, we want to make sure that it's accessible for everyone who wants to run for office and they don't need to spend thousands of dollars on consulting help. We can help them do that for free. Well, that's a very, uh, I guess the right word is democratizing way to look at uh, recruiting people to run for office. I'm curious, as part of the Rise and Run program, what are some of the things that you look for in candidates? You know, we want people that are um, in it for the right reasons, have the experience and are representative of their communities to do that particular piece of work. We have great values, I think, as a Democratic Party when it comes to uh, family wage jobs, health care for all, you know, our education policies, dignified retirement, affordable housing, helping people in need, all of these different things. We want people who reflect those and are going to use their office to make sure that that happens in their jurisdiction. So whether they end up running for fire commissioner in a fire district or they end up running for school board or city council or hospital district, for example, are they doing this work? Are they helping to make sure that all of these values carry through in the work they do every day? And if somebody would like to learn more about the Rise and Run program, where can they go? They can just go to our website at the uh, Washington Democrats, wa-democrats.org, and click on the Run for Office button. It'll be on the homepage, and you'll get right into the Rise and Run program. You can uh, uh, go on and take some of the lessons themselves to see what it takes to run for office and explore a variety of different offices that you may want to run for. Okay, that's great. So I do want to shift over and talk about how we as activists and PCOs in 2019 get people excited about voting this year. And as you say, there really is no such thing as an off-year election anymore, especially uh, in the political situation that we're in right now. But it is a little bit of a push to get people to vote. We know that these years traditionally have a lower turnout. So how do we get people excited? Well, I think people get excited about candidates and making change in their own backyard. Um, 
this is one of the things that we've seen uh, in this particular cycle in that if you've worked on a congressional campaign in 2018 or you worked on a legislative district campaign, working on a school board campaign or a city council race seems very doable. And you get to spend a lot of time interacting with whomever that candidate might be to make change in your own community. So if if you look at the numbers that we're talking about, I mean, it's really a couple thousand votes here and there that make the difference as to whether or not we get terrific progressive Democrats elected to these offices, whether we have diverse representation in these offices. And we've tried to recruit a lot of different candidates, particularly women, people of color, people from the LGBTQ community, people um, who are uh, who immigrated to this country. I think a lot of different folks who represent the electorate in Washington state in a very, very different way. And those voices in a very, very different way. Um, in the last cycle in Olympia, we had the most diverse state legislature ever, thanks to our efforts in 2018 and the efforts of activists around the state. And you saw such great policy coming out of there because you had diverse voices around the table. Right. So it's this is the this is the opportunity to do that, to get those diverse voices on your school board, on your city council, in those areas that make a difference to your life every day. And you know what? It's a beautiful time to get your steps in knocking doors. So it's part of <laughs> part of our health care program, too. <laughs> there you go. Take your Fitbit when you're exactly. out there. Absolutely. Exactly. And, you know, something else is I think, uh, you know, our volunteer efforts can go a lot further. And our dollars, really, when we donate to these campaigns, can have a much bigger impact, right? Absolutely. Most of these campaigns cost somewhere between five and $20,000 to run. So when you think about that in the context of, you know, a presidential campaign, which is multi-millions of dollars. This is really about, you know, a couple of dollars here and there make a dramatic difference into how a candidate can get um, their message out to different voters. But also your time, a couple of hours here and there makes a dramatic difference in the terms of the number of voters that are contacted and how you can make a difference in your own hometown or, or home county or home district. So get out there and do the work, pick a candidate that you want to work for and it's it, it will make for a terrific summer and the clock is ticking ballots are going to show up in people's mailboxes uh the week of uh july 17th so um it's time they've got the three weeks between now and the general uh, or rather the primary election date to do that work you mentioned that there are 689 democratic candidates uh, running across the state what are some races that you particularly are paying close attention to this year you know, we're looking at all the school board and city council races, frankly. I think as you look across the state um, and you take a big city like Seattle, right? Lots of people are running for city council. Lots of people are running in those districts. Lots of great choices. But move to a place like um, Tri-Cities, for example, and look to see who's running for city council races there in Kennewick, in Pasco, um, in, uh, in Richland. Take a look at what's happening in the South Sound area and Pierce County as well. Who's running for all of those different seats and how diverse are they? What are we doing in traditionally red areas of the state, like Yakima, for example, um, that uh, we had some success in terms of getting Latina women to be able to run and win for Yakima City Council. But now we need to continue to capitalize on those gains and do that particular piece of work. So we're looking at all the very red areas around the state. And I'd urge folks, get out of the cities. 
um, get out and do the work. Um, but if there's one place I really do want you to do the work in a city, it'd be in Spokane and go help out Ben Stuckert in his race for mayor in Spokane. Cause we need him to win that one. Yeah. We had him on the show and boy, is he an impressive candidate. I will just tell you very candidly that I have never talked to a, a candidate before who was as forthcoming as he is and disarming and just a, a wonderful candidate with great policies. So a hundred percent agreed on that. So before I let you go, you mentioned that ballots are soon to drop. Um, but the Seattle Times reported that there have been some problems with logging voter registration. What's the latest on this situation? So the new system that the Secretary of State has put together, Vote Washington, has had uh, tremendous issues with problems in terms of people registering to vote. And in fact, we have not gotten a voter file update um, as a state party since April of this year of the thousands of people who have registered since April. All of the different county auditors have raised this as a flag. They are working through the backlogs in the system. But one of the things that I think it's incredibly important for folks to do is to really go in and check and make sure that their voter registration is valid, uh, to make sure the, to check uh, that if they don't get a ballot, that they are um uh, talking to their local county auditor. Um, so to double check your voter registration, you can visit VoteWA, it's V-O-T-E-W-A.gov, to make sure their registration is up to date. And if it's not, then you need to call and make sure that you receive your ballot uh, in, in that way. And we've got a list of uh, the various uh, county election offices, but also, we're a part of the Washington Voting Justice Coalition, and I'd urge folks to go to that website. You have a list of all the county election offices, all of their phone numbers, all the different ways that uh, you can do the work to make sure that you vote and get a ballot. And I'll give you that website. It's WA Voting Justice, all one word, wavotingjustice.org. So make sure that if you don't get your ballot in the next couple of days, you're checking your voter registration and then doing the work now to get that ballot in hand. Okay, and I will make sure to have that information at indivisiblepodcast.org. Just, you know, before I let you go, we were talking before we began our interview about just how really dark things are right now with uh, Trump's racist attacks on members of Congress, the situation at the border you are a very optimistic person. You are a real ray of light and you keep people pretty charged up. So I would just ask you before you go, can you leave us with a couple of inspiring and uplifting words? Absolutely. I mean, this is the opportunity for all of us to come together and make dramatic change, not just in our cities and towns, but in our state and in our country. You know, you have the tweeter in chief doing the things that he's doing that are blatantly racist and anti-everything. Um, that feels so frustrating. It feels so terrible. You could spend your entire day just responding to it. I urge folks to say, you know, let him tweet into the darkness. Let him mm. not worry about that. Worry about what's happening in these local elections because you change who's in those seats, you change what happens in terms of policy. And it really does happen one voter at a time, one area at a time. So don't sit behind your screen uh, just doing uh, the work on social media, get out there, get engaged with a campaign, get engaged with other people, knock doors. First of all, you'll be around people who believe the way that you do, and that's a lift. But second of all, you'll actively be doing something that is proactively making changes in this country. I believe in us. 
And I believe in our ability to do this. Look, in 2018, we flipped the the House at the congressional level. In 2020, I really think that we can take the Senate back. We hold the seats that we have for Democrats. And if we can win in Arizona, in Colorado, in Maine, and potentially in Iowa is another opportunity for us, um, we can flip the Senate and I do believe that we will get through this this gang of 20 mm-hmm. presidential candidates come up with our standard bearer and be able to beat Donald Trump. I believe in our ability to do that on a state by state level. And I believe in the people of this country to do that work, to make that happen. So I if you need just call me at the Washington State Dems <laughs> office. If you need a pep talk, I'm happy give it to you and get you into a campaign. But every day I'm going to crisscross the state and we're going to make sure that people are out there doing the work. Well, those are wonderful words. Uh, Tina Podlodowski is the chair of the Washington State Democratic Party. Tina, thank you for that. Thank you for your time and thanks for everything you do. Thank you so much for everything that you do and for doing the best podcast in the country. I love listening to it. On Sunday, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, conducted raids on migrants and families all across the country. Here in Washington, the Washington Immigrant Solidarity Network, or WISEN, has been working hard to make sure that people know their rights if they're being targeted. And they also offer a training for community members called Rapid Response. We are joined by Brenda Rodriguez. She is the Eastern Washington Coordinator for WISEN to tell us more. Hi, Brenda. Hi. So I said that it would be targeting 10 cities on Sunday. Seattle was not one of them, but I understand there were reports of ICE activity around the state. Was Weissen anticipating this? Yes, we were anticipating calls reporting um, enforcement activity um, because our communities were very anxious and vigilant. Um, And that was actually the case. About one third of the calls that we received this weekend were potential sightings of suspicious cars, of ICE agents. People called us to let us know that CBP was having lunch and they looked like they were ready to go on a mission. Hmm. So people were really vigilant in calling us to report. Well, so how does Wayson confirm cases of ICE when they take people and or families? So when our community calls the hotline, uh, Montserrat Padilla, which is the West Side coordinator, and I review that information. So based on what the, where the call is coming from, the second component of what we do is rapid response. So we, we alert our local rapid response team. For example, if this activity is happening in Tri-Cities, we alert our Tri-Cities rapid response team. We let them know the location of where the sighting happened. If the caller provided the number of cars, the type of uniforms that we're wearing, all that information we provided to them. And then they let us know who can go and confirm that volunteer goes to that particular location and confirms whether this is a, a true or not. Um, oftentimes, if they don't see anything, they'll still go inside the business or they'll talk with people that are around the area, gather as much information. Um, They'll stay in the location for a few minutes just to make sure that nothing happens. And that is how uh, rumors are either confirmed or dismissed. Got it. Okay, yeah. So the people can be aware of what's going on in a particular area at at any one time. Uh, And you're referring to the Rapid Response Network, uh, and this is something that I mentioned people can get trained for. Um, Tell us a little bit more about the Rapid Response Network and, and how it works. 
Um, our Rapid Response Network is a community defense project that was developed to protect immigrant and refugee communities from deportation threats and to provide support during and after a community member um, has been arrested or detained. We have over 20 rapid response teams all across the, the state. And when we train rapid response teams, we train them on how to identify the different agencies under the Department of Homeland Security, right? So how to tell the difference between a Custom and Border Patrol agent, CBP, versus a Immigration Custom and Enforcement, ICE, or local police. Um, we go over a Know Your Rights session, and um, we really focus on ensuring that they know the difference between an administrative warrant um, and a judicial warrant, which a judicial warrant um, grants permission to enter private property. And um, the last component of our training really focuses on how to document ICE activity, what to look for, what questions to ask to an agent if this activity is happening at the moment, um, how to record, how to de-escalate, because oftentimes that evidence can be used when somebody is detained, especially if their rights were violated. This all sounds like incredibly valuable uh, training and sadly very needed right now. I know you have a number of trainings coming up, and this is being done exclusively online at this point, right? Right. So we are focusing our energy in training um, allies and uh, through our webinar rapid response trainings, and um, we are focusing on doing more your rights in person for impacted community. So the two upcoming trainings that we have on rapid response are July 24th and August 6th from five to seven. People can sign up for these trainings um, by going to our website or by going to our Facebook page. Okay, great. And I'll have that information available for people at indivisiblepodcast.org. You know, I also understand that Wyson needs volunteers to accompany immigrants to their court dates. Can you tell us about the need there? Over the past months, we have seen an increase of ICE and CBP enforcement outside of the courthouses all across the state. So people that are going to courts to either pay a ticket or go in front of a, of a judge to dispute a citation or to go get a licensed marriage, um, they're being detained. And so we have developed an accompaniment program, which is volunteers walking side by side immigrant communities um, during this process. And this is built off of our rapid response curriculum. So the volunteers are there to do similar work than when they are dispatched to do rapid response, which is to verify that it's a nice agent, to document that interaction, to ask to see a judicial warrant, and to remind the community member of their constitutional rights. and. As you mentioned, we are looking for volunteers. We are working on a holistic accompaniment program, um, and we are expanding accompaniment to other areas like ICE check-ins, um, when people have to go and get their biometrics done. Um, when you say get their biometrics done, what do you mean? They go to the UCIS office in either Tequila or Yakima, and they go get their fingerprints done. So this is done for DACA recipients or anyone that's in the process of finding some 
sort of relief, oftentimes they have to go to those offices and provide paperwork. So um, we will also be able to accompany people through that process. And our volunteers can also sign up online on our website, on our Facebook page. You will be trained. We are seeking for folks that are ideally bilingual, but if you're not bilingual, you could also be part of it. I was going to ask about that, yeah. Yes, um, oftentimes, you know, um, the demand is much higher than what we have capacity for right now. So a lot of our um, English-speaking community members have really stepped up. And, you know, even though they, they are not bilingual, they can still do the accompaniment. We oftentimes have either myself or Montserrat or one of our bilingual volunteers be on call. So we can definitely work around the language barrier. Great. So you referred to this earlier, but Weissen has been circulating flyers in the community about what people should know and what they should do if they are being targeted by ICE. What does that flyer advise people to do? That flyer advises people to not open the door if somebody is knocking, especially if they don't recognize the person that's behind the door, or if they refuse to um, identify themselves, or they have said their eyes or CBP. So it's really important for community members to not open the door. Just by opening the door, you don't have to verbally consent to letting them inside the, the home, but opening the door they'll walk in. So it's really important to not to do that and to train their kids not to open the door. It's my understanding they can't come in without a warrant. Is that true? That's correct. They cannot come in without a judicial warrant. Oftentimes people open the door, um, which then they come in, even if they don't have a judicial warrant, and then folks end up in detention. So it's really important to not open the door so that you have time to ask for them to identify themselves. The second right that we remind people of, it's the right to remain silent. Anything we say will be used against us, especially by an immigration officer. So not answering questions like, where were you born? Are you here legally? Do you have documents? And remaining silent doesn't mean that you're muted. It means that you are responding to them. I will exercise my right to remain silent, or I don't have to answer your questions, or I'm not going to answer those questions. And then the the third right that we remind our community is to not sign any documents. Oftentimes, they're being handed out their own deportation form, and if you'll sign that, um, then they are self-deporting. So it's really important to not sign any documents. And the two uh, last points that we have in those flyers are is our hotline number, so people know to call us if somebody is at their door or if they want to be reminded of what their rights are and to join our text alert system. So if there is the raid or active verified ICE activity in their community, they will receive a text message in their language letting them know. Okay. And I should just mention that that number is 844-742-3737. And again, that information will be available to people on the website. And just to be clear, should people use this number to report ICE activity? Yes. Um, And that is the, the number one purpose of the hotline. If people suspect of immigration activity in their neighborhood or if they are being the target of enforcement activity or if a loved one has been detained, we encourage people to call the hotline before they go and post on their social media that they think ISIS is in their community, right? Because then just right. escalates and people um, 
panic and then there's rumors and so we want people to call the hotline so that we can send verifiers and confirm or dismiss those you know related to that uh, we have known that police are not supposed to be cooperating with ice in cities like seattle or areas like king county uh, both of which have been designated sanctuary areas but there was recently legislation passed in olympia that impacts the whole state can you tell us about that um, so Keep Washington Working was the legislation that was recently passed. It was signed um, into law on May 21st. And this law prohibits any state agency from sharing information or assisting or collaborating with immigration enforcement. And if people have cases or they hear stories from community members or they themselves have been asked about their immigration status by a police officer, by the state patrol, or or have been, their loved ones has been turned over to ICE when they were at a county jail or any sort of collaboration between any state agency and immigration please have them call the hotline or call the hotline yourself to report it. Um, and this is one of the tools that we are using to track the enforcement of Keep Washington working. So let our communities know that if their rights have been violated, they can call the hotline and report it. And we, we are working closely with other organizational uh, members to ensure that there's accountability to those agencies for not following the law. Yeah, that's terrific. One would imagine that the attorney general's office may get involved uh, in some of those violations there. And just one last thing before I let you go, Weissen is encouraging people to donate to the Fair Fight Bond Fund. You referenced this uh, briefly earlier. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, our Fair Fight Bond Fund is a collective effort to provide um, bond money for low-income individuals detained at the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma. Um, so we are encouraging people to donate all their donations. 100% of their donations will go towards bailing somebody out of the detention center. Um, they can go to the fairfightfundfund.org. Um, that is our website. They can donate. They can write a check. They can make a donation through the website. They can host an event um, to fundraise. We, we can also partner up with local businesses. So some of the proceeds go to the Fun fun. So if folks want to create an event to fundraise for this, please email us at info at wisen.org. We just opened up our bond fund again because we have enough funds to start helping people again. But as you can imagine, um, the demand is much higher. Yeah. We see bonds anywhere from 5000 to $25,000. So that money can quickly run out. Sure. So um, we want to be able to provide this in a more sustainable way to our community. So we, we highly encourage donations and for people to connect with us if they want to fundraise. I was going to say a fundraiser is is a great idea uh, for people who may not have the means individually to be able to do something collectively could have more impact. And so how can people support the work that Weissen does? They can volunteer with our network. So this is a volunteer-led network. Our hotline is run by volunteers. Um, our rapid response teams are volunteers. We have six organizing tables. All of those organizing tables are run by volunteers, by organizational members. So um, if people want to give us some of their time, they can start a rapid response team. They can 
be trained to be on a ship for the hotline. They can write grants for us if that is one of their skills. They can help with communications. They can help us fundraise. They can also make donations for YSEN for our general operations. We are in high need of printing. As you can imagine, uh, we need to ensure that the hotline number, that the Know Your Rights flyers that I was talking about earlier are in community and are accessible to our community. We have them in seven different languages. So donating for some of the printing costs can also be a one way to get involved. I would encourage you people to follow us on, on social media. That is the way for you to stay updated on what is happening on the ground, to come to our general meetings. The second Wednesday of every month, if you're a part of an organization or you have a group of community members and you want to become an official member, um, you can email us at info at wisen.org. So there, there are many ways for people to, to be plugged in into the work right now. And as folks can imagine, this is a very anxious time for our community yeah. and we need support in every level. There is so much to do, and it is such vital work that you're doing right now. Brenda Rodriguez is the Eastern Washington Coordinator for the Washington Immigrant Solidarity Network. Brenda, thank you for all you're doing, and uh, thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me on. Since its founding in 2018, the group Lawyer Moms of America has worked to reunite children who have been separated from their families at the border. This July 27th and 28th, they will be sponsoring a fundraiser called Take a Stand for Migrant Families, where children across the country will host lemonade stands aimed at raising funds and awareness for migrant children. Toval Kopan is a co-founder and the president of Lawyer Moms of America, and she joins us now to talk about it. Hi, Tova. Hi, how are you? I'm good. So before we talk about the fundraiser, we know that 2019 has just been an utterly heartbreaking year for children of migrants and asylum seekers. We have all seen the images of children detained in Clint, Texas and elsewhere. What are some of the things that Lawyer Moms has been doing in response to the situation? Right. So we started, like you said, in 2018, and we started really when they're along with the the public outcry of the family separation. And we started as really just a a ragtag crew of folks that got together and thought, we're lawyers, we're mothers, there has to be something we can do. And recognizing that we are not immigration lawyers, um, we are not at the border. So even though we think of ourselves as being able to do a great job of advocacy, what, what exactly can can we do? And with all of us with kids at home and that sort of thing. And so we started last year with a letter delivery, which was really just advocacy. And we wanted to go to our members of Congress and keep the heat on and demand that they require, uh, whether it's additional investigations, just a stop to the family separation and, and be a voice of part of the larger public pressure against the family separation. We do sort of a balance. So we officially have our Lawyer Moms of America, which is our advocacy branch. And then we have our Lawyer Moms Foundation, which is the charitable side. And we really do a combination of advocacy, whether it's encouraging um, our members to reach out to their members of Congress, even go to their town council, their mayor's office, just to see, you know, what is our immigration policy? What is our local policy? Because as we know, and as we've seen, a lot of what 
whether it's ICE or different organizations get, um, they get information from local governments. And so just helping our members become more aware. Uh, we've also done a fair number of writing comments to regulation changes. Um, so there's this whole advocacy branch, and then there is the really charitable fundraising side. And that's what the Kids Take a Stand event is. And we also did something over the holidays, which is Lights the Way, which we adopted 30 families, uh, recently migrated families, and tried to give them a, a good holiday. Um, just some new things, some toys. And we're going to do that again this year for the holidays. Last year, I will say it started as an idea of a friend of a friend of a friend, really, who said, well, where can I donate? Can I adopt a family? And we looked around and thought, okay, there's some regional things, but there's not a nationwide adopt a family program. So let's start. And we started about two weeks before Thanksgiving, which was exciting to get, try to get that done. But uh, we were able to provide some necessities and some toys for some migrant families. This year we're starting in August, okay. so we'll be a little more we'll be a little more prepared. You get to jump on the holiday season that way. Well, yeah. th it sounds like you're doing a tremendous work all across the board. Let's specifically talk about kids take a stand. Where did the idea come from to do these lemonade stands? So this started with one of our members, Jasmine Bryant, in California. Um, she and, and this is something that we really want to do as an organization. That if somebody and similar with the lights away. If somebody has an idea and we can make it work, like, let's try to make it work. So part of it is, uh, I believe where it came from, is the sense that a lot of us have young children. And they were, I mean, I keep my kids from watching the news. And yet I also don't want to sugarcoat everything that's going on in the world. And so we were struggling with figuring out, right, you're hearing stuff at school or at summer camp. Um, how do we talk to our kids about this yeah. and how do we have it so that they don't feel like they can't do anything? Kids see a problem and they want to fix it. And to them, there's, this is a no brainer problem. Families shouldn't be separated and kids should be giving everything they need when they're in detention. And frankly, they shouldn't be detained. Right. And so that for kids, this is, this is incredibly straightforward. And so we wanted to give kids an opportunity to, talk about this, but not in such a, a way with, you know, woe is me, we can't do anything, but in a what can we do? And then also as a fundraiser. Um, and so this started last year and we were able to raise over $35,000 last year. Well, that's fantastic. And so this year's event is happening on July 27th and 28th. And I know that you're encouraging people to, uh, to get involved, get their kids involved. What do people need to do to help their kids host their own lemonade stand? So if you go to lawyermomsfoundation.org, there is a whole link to Kids Take a Stand. It allows you to register your stand. Um, it allows you to also see a list of local stands. So we are encouraging people to find out, you know, register your stand so people can find you and also see what else is out there. And then we have a whole toolkit and the toolkit gives you Logos you can cut out and use if you want to make official signs. If you just want to have a sign that says lemonade stand, that works too. But we have pamphlets on there so that if you want to print out information so that people who are buying your lemonade can know the organizations that we're donating to, all of those things are in the toolkit right on the website. So the goal being to make this as easy as possible. Um, 
Additionally, just in case people are worried, when you register your stand, you do have the option if you want the address printed or just the town. Okay. So that way, that way if you don't want people to come to your house um, and maybe you just want to say, hey, I'm covering the town, and then you post in your local Facebook group, come on over, you can do that. Um, but we you know, we recognize some people might want your address all over the Internet and some people might not. So we sure. give you the option. Well, you mentioned the link where people can find all this information, and I will have that at IndivisiblePodcast.org. You also mentioned that people, if they are so inclined, can invite influencers, members of Congress, people like that to attend. You can even put out a press release, uh, blanket social media. There's a guide to how to do all of that at LawyerMomsFoundation.org. Uh, so I know you're looking to host a stand in all 50 states. How close are you right now to that? We are at, last check, uh, 26 states which is already as many as we had last year, um, and we have a week and a half left. So we are very excited. We already have more stands this year signed up. We have 122 at last check. And I keep saying last check because literally we get stands every day being added. We already have Alaska, which is new, which is exciting. That's exciting, Um, yeah. More stands than we did last year and uh, more states or the same number of states with a week and a half left. So we feel pretty confident we are going to be hitting all 50 states um, and we are excited to have this number of stands. And then the other option is because we recognize, um, you know, people are on vacation this time of year. For many people, school starting that Monday, um, depending on where you live around the country, it's also really, really hot. Um, so we give the opportunity for people to have a virtual lemonade stand. And so, yeah, I was going to mention that. So how does that work? So basically, uh, it's just a Facebook fundraiser to be perfectly honest, which, but it's something that we have it separated so that we know that if you're making a donation through the virtual lemonade stand, uh, that we know that it's part of the, this larger lemonade stand. So as of right now, we don't have a text uh, donate feature, but we are working on it. We had it last year. We're hoping to have it again this year. So we can let you know what the number is if that happens. Um, So there's a lot of different ways to donate beyond, you know, making lemonade. And people, uh, to be honest, one of the most fun things last year was just seeing the variety of lemonade stands, seeing who showed up at the different lemonade stands. Um, whether it was like Maxine Waters last year showed up at a lemonade stand. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. So town council members, I mean, different people. We do encourage people, you know, invite your mayor, invite your town council member, um, your local football star, whoever you want to come and see the lemonade, because this is sort of a a three-parter, right? Um, The Kids Take a Stand is really important because we are raising money, and we're raising money for – kids in need of defense, so for legal representation, right? Because in order to get kids and families out of detention, they need representation. So we are lawyers, and we want to make sure that everyone who needs a lawyer gets a lawyer. Um, But we are also splitting the proceeds with Rio Grande Valley Rapid Response, which is providing everything else you need once you get out of detention. So if it were up to us, we would be able to send toothbrushes and soap and everything people need in detention while they're waiting, but we can't do that. But what we can do is support organizations like the Rio Grande Valley Rapid Response who are providing the soap, the bus fare, or the translation to get on a bus. Whatever it is that people need when they get out of detention, 
to get them sort of back in good health, feeling good and reconnected with their families and friends that are in the United States. We're trying to support that as well. The second thing though is really awareness, right? So there are people who have busy lives and we get that, but if you have a lemonade stand on your street and it has a sign saying kids take a stand, supporting kids in, de in detention or close the camps or whatever you want to put on your side, however you want to get involved, people will then see that, right? They're raising awareness. You share it on your Facebook page. That's raising awareness. Um, and then lastly, it's education. So it's part of the awareness of just letting you know what's going on and what's still going on is educating people, whether it's your kids and figuring out a way to talk to them in a positive way, or whether it is talking to people as they walk by saying, oh, really? Like, you can raise money and that can do something and you can help educate them as well. Well, this is tremendous work for a very worthwhile cause. And uh, I, again, will have all of this information for people who want to get involved and uh, host their own stand at indivisiblepodcast.org. Tova Kopan is co-founder and she is the president of Lawyer Moms of America. Tova, thank you so much. Thank you. And we will end this week with our call to action, and we will check in with our friend Stephen Wilhelm. He is research team leader for Indivisibles Washington's 8th District. Stephen, how you been, man? I'm good, Stephen. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. So, uh, you know, we only have one call to action this week, and that is to take part in the coordinated defund hate campaign. So uh, we have seen the images of asylum seekers and their children in just horrific conditions at CPB uh, facilities at the border. We have heard about ICE raids tearing families apart across the country, including activity here in Washington. And one of the ways that House Democrats can push back against all of this is through the appropriations process. And that is where Congress determines what gets spent where in the budget each year. So uh, just give us an overview. What was Trump asking for in his his 2020 budget for CBP, ICE, and DHS generally? So uh, Trump is continuing his attacks against migrants, and, and he's using Customs and Border Protection and, and ICE to do that. Uh, as your listeners recall, uh, shut down the government for over a month in an effort to uh, get funding for his wall, and he's already requested billions more for both ICE and Customs and Border Patrol in, in uh, 2020. He wants to use the money to uh, pay for the wall. He wants to get more ICE and CPP. Uh, agents, and he wants to get more detention facilities for immigrants' families. So the DHS appropriations bill that recently passed out of, out of committee and is um, up for a floor vote is our best way to attack uh, the funding that he's asking for. Okay, and so what is in that bill that made it through the appropriations committee? What is in it for CPB and ICE? Yeah, it's a little, um, certainly the House Democrats have made an effort to improve the bill and they have done some good things and, and so they should be, um, you know, thanked for that. But there's still a lot of work to do to make this a better bill. Fundamentally, probably what your listeners should know is that this bill does ask for more money than was allocated in 2019. Um, and it certainly is asking for more money than President Obama was spending for these agencies in fiscal year 2016. Customs and Border Patrol particularly has had a really troubled history throughout its, since its inception um, after the September 11th attacks. 
And so your listeners should ask their representatives to please not give um, in the DHS appropriations more money for Customs and Border Patrol and ICE than they have received um, in the fiscal year 2016 budget. We'd really like to see the funding go back to that level. Um, and, and specifically, there's um, what Indivisible is calling a slush fund, what's called an additional $387 million potentially available in response to a migration surge if certified by the Secretary of DHS. So ICE, who enforces the um, uh, immigration laws in the interior of the country, certainly doesn't need an additional $400 million to be terrorizing immigrants um, and doing these mass arrests that they have been talking about doing. And they certainly don't need this uh, additional $387 million slush fund. So two requests, call your representative, ask them to please return Customs and Border Patrol and ICE funding back to fiscal year 2016 level and remove the $387 million slush fund for ICE from the fiscal year 2019 DHS budget. Okay, there you go. And I will mention that this is all part of the hashtag defund hate campaign co-chaired by the Detention Watch Network and United We Dream and Indivisible is a proud partner of that campaign. And if you would like to learn more about it, you can go on Twitter and check out hashtag defund hate. Stephen, thank you so much. My pleasure, Stephen. We'll talk to you soon. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you missed anything, if you would like to catch up on some past shows, if you would like links to the many, many things that we talked about, you can find all of that and more at indivisiblepodcast.org, and you can subscribe to the show there, too. If you would like to get in touch, the email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Our associate producer is Charlotte Gittleman. Thank you again to my guests, Tina Podlodowski, Brenda Rodriguez, and Tova Copan. Special thanks to Aaron Albanese and Montserrat Padilla. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.